0: So please remain standing for our scripture lesson. Familiar verses out of Matthew chapter 28. The closing words of chapter 28. Jesus' instructions to his apostles, also known as the Great Commission. Surely there's much packed in here. Matthew 28, verses 18. Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. It's a privilege and a great joy to be able to share God's word with you again. But before we dive into our text, will you pray with me? Our gracious and great God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we come to you recognizing our need and we pray with the psalmist, bow down thine ear and hear for we are poor and needy. We recognize that we are sinners in the sight of a holy God. And we recognize our need to be fed from your word. Please help us to have ears to hear what you would communicate to us today. please, Be with me. Help me to preach Christ. Help me to rightly divide the word this morning. Help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For it's in the name of Christ that we do pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been asked what your mission statement is? Uh, Maybe your employer has a mission statement That communicates to customers and to employees what it is that they are about, what it is that drives them, what their purpose is. Well, children, maybe you've been asked the question some point too, what do you want to be when you grow up? And in fact, this is a question that is often asked of the church. What is the church's mission? What is the church here for? Is it just a social club? Is it to be a political commentator on every trend? Is it here just to make people feel good about themselves? This is a question that's both asked within the church and outside of the church as well. And we see that there's not great unanimity on the answer to this question. Some think that the church should do one thing and someone else thinks it should do another. Yet, the answer to this question is of utmost importance. The reason for this is because the gospel message is at stake. If we do not get the answer to this question right, the very gospel itself is at stake. So this is a relevant question for every single one of us today. Whether you're a part of the church or whether you're not a part of the church, this question matters to you. But the good news is that we don't have to go around hopelessly wondering what the answer to this question is about the mission of the church, why the church exists. And the reason is because Jesus himself answers this very question, what is the church's mission, as he gives the great commission to his disciples. But before we take a look at this text, I want to set the stage a little and give you a little context as we approach the ending of Matthew's gospel. Matthew appears to have written his gospel to Jewish Christians, We talked about last week that Mark wrote to Gentile Christians. So we have a difference here. We also note that the gospel message was first to be proclaimed to the Jewish people, and upon the rejection of the Messiah, it was then to go forward to the Gentiles. For example, we can see in Acts chapter 1 that the gospel was to go from Jerusalem to Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we see this pattern here, even from the book of Acts. Many of you may be familiar with how Matthew opens his gospel. He starts with this genealogy. And you may be tempted to think to yourself, now this is an interesting historical note, you know, what that's pretty neat to see that, that Jesus descended from all of these people. And you may want to hurry through that to get to, you know, the good stuff or to get to the meat of the, the book, but I want to caution you don't blow past this. God is not random, He's not arbitrary. And when Matthew wrote his gospel, there's a specific reason that he put this genealogy here. He shows that Jesus descended all the way from Abraham, the patriarch, to King David, the royal king of Israel. And so he's very particular here. And so I don't want you to just brush past this. Because Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. This is a very important theme in his gospel. And... From that genealogy, we see that theme, but we also see it in the birth narrative as he describes Jesus being born in Bethlehem. Well, from here, Matthew moves on and he shows how Jesus is prepared to begin his ministry. Just as Mark includes details about Jesus' baptism and his wilderness temptation, uh, Matthew includes those as well. And we see that Jesus was prepared for this as he's anointed by the Holy Spirit and he's victorious over Satan in his temptation. And so we see an authoritative Savior, an authoritative Christ right on the scene. But Mark or Matthew, excuse me, then shows us opposition to Jesus' authority. So he's met with opposition, but what's interesting is that it's opposition from his own people. His own people oppose him, the scribes and the Pharisees, and so much so that they crucify him on a Roman cross. But what was meant to thwart Jesus' authority resulted in his exaltation to the right hand of the Father. And as a result of this, it had the opposite effect, that now this Jesus has all authority in heaven and on earth. His authority becomes universal through his death on the cross. I love the way one of my professors summarizes the book of Matthew. He says, The gospel shows how Jesus was born king of the Jews and became king of the universe. So that's the stage that we're looking at. And though Christ gives his church, his disciples, the great commission, and tells them what their mission is, based on his authority, in light of his resurrection and his exaltation, The church can often be tempted not to trust in his authority, but to question it. To trust in our own methods, in what we think is right, in what we think is good. And we do this because of how things look around us, because of our own experiences. The temptation is not to trust the Holy Spirit, to bless the ordinary means of grace that we even are taking part in today, but to go with what makes sense to us And as a result, we then structure what we do based on our own opinions. And we cast aside Jesus' authority. But, when we answer this question, we must keep our eyes on Christ, the one who has all the authority. And we must trust Him to work through the means that He has ordained and the mission that He has given His church. So in our passage today, I want us to further consider... This mission. And we'll do that under three headings. First, Jesus' authority in declaring the church's mission. Second, Jesus' commands regarding the church's mission. And finally, Jesus' promise regarding the church's mission. So our first point, Jesus' authority in declaring the church's mission. Before jumping into verse 18, I want to back up two verses to 16 and 17. Jesus has told his disciples to gather on this mountain where he's going to meet them, and we are told that some worship Jesus, but we're told that others doubted. Similar to our context today. Some believe in him, some doubt. But we see that Jesus does in fact meet his disciples at this exact place, just as he had said, and he begins to speak to them. He begins to give to them this mission, So that's the stage of our text this morning. And what's interesting to note is the them in verse 18 refers to his disciples. So what we can take from this is that this mission he's about to give them was given to his disciples and by extension to his church. Ephesians 2.20 states that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. They were the foundation of the people of God. But we know that the office of apostle has ceased. An apostle was one who was an eyewitness of Christ and was also called by him. And so when they passed away, Christ didn't leave his church without leaders. He gave his church elders and also deacons to lead his church and to minister to his church. And the elders, specifically, he charges with the task of preaching the gospel. But it's under his authority, it's not their own. It's on the basis of Christ as the head of the church giving this authority to his under-shepherds. Now, there is a sense in which each of us as individuals ought to bear this gospel message. We see in the series that Pastor Mark's presenting um, forward to us in Second Corinthians that Paul refers to himself and his comrades as ambassadors of Christ. But the same is true for us as individuals. In our spheres at work, at school, with our friends, we're to also share the gospel with them and to help them see the beauty of it. Yet, we can also note that Christ in this passage specifically gives this charge to his church collectively. So we want to note that. But what's interesting here is that Christ begins when he speaks by saying that all authority has been given to me. All authority has been given to me. This alludes to Daniel 7.14, which says, And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. This dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. So you may be thinking to yourself, Wait, hold on a second. Didn't Jesus have authority before his incarnation? Before he died on the cross and and rose again and ascended up into heaven? And you would be right. Jesus did have authority as the Son of God. And we see that, for example, in his forgiving of sins before he died on the cross and in the other works that he did, his miracles and his teaching, which bore his authority. But... We want to note carefully here that the authority that he has been given now does not become more sovereign. It's not as though he had no authority beforehand. Let me give an example. So we all are likely familiar with the account of Joshua in the battle of Jericho. God tells the Israelites to go and possess the land because this land was theirs rightfully, though it was possessed by the enemies of God. So there's a sense in which they had authority over this land even before they destroyed Jericho. But once they did destroy Jericho in obedience, the sphere of their authority extended now to include this territory of Jericho. So in a similar sense, Jesus' post-resurrection authority now includes all of heaven and all of earth. So the sphere in which he exercises it is extended. He always has had authority. And this authority was given to him by God, by his Father. The Lord Jesus Christ, who is handed over to be crucified by his own people, now has eternal dominion. Now his dominion is all the earth and all of heaven. It's universal. There's not one iota, or as R.C. Sproul would say, not one maverick molecule that is outside of his sovereign rule, that is outside of his purview. It is his right, and it was given to him as he obeyed his father by dying even on a cross. And we see also his obedience in resisting going his own way, as he submitted to his father as he resisted the devil. We've already noted that so often we are tempted to trust in ourselves, but we have the pattern of Christ here in this text that He resisted His own ideas, His own authority in a sense, laid it down and listened to what His Father had said. So following Jesus' example, let us follow this exalted and risen Christ together. He is victorious. And as a result, He's the one who has all authority. And it's from that right that he then charges his disciples, as we will continue to look at in our text. Well, let's say that you had the opportunity to learn how to play basketball from Michael Jordan. He was going to be your instructor. And if he came over to teach you the fundamentals of the game, and to teach you what to do and how to shoot, perhaps, would you listen to him? Of course you would. You're thinking, duh. But why? Because of his authority his authority in the game of basketball. Well, the same is true for us today when we have to answer this question, will we, will you submit to Christ's authority? Will you submit to his ultimate universal authority? And will you take him at his word when he promises to give the church her mission and promises for the mission to be successful? Will we trust in him who has all authority over heaven and over earth. We must come back to the word when we doubt, when we struggle, when we are wrestling with trusting him and what he says. We we need to come back to his word and renew our minds and say, no, God, what is it that you say? What is it that you promise? And that's the pattern for the Christian life. When we doubt God's word, when we doubt uh, what he says to be true of us, when we doubt his ability to grow us in grace and, and conquer that sin, the same is true. We have to take him at his word, and we can take him at his word because his word is sure. Well, so far we have considered Jesus' authority in declaring the Great Commission, the church's mission. Now let's consider our second point, Jesus' commands regarding the church's mission. So as we jump down to verse 19 and then the first part of 20, we turn to see the specific details of what this commission looks like. So having established his universal authority, now he tells the church specifically what they're to be tasked with doing. What what is to be their mission statement? And he does this by a fourfold command. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. And we will look at each one of these. First he commands them to go. Notice that go implies action or not to be passive. We're not just to sit idly by as the the wind blows and just think, well, you know, things will kind of work themselves out. No, we're to be taken up with an active mission to be laboring and working for the kingdom of God in this mission that he has given to his church. And we are to be taken up with this labor because it's been given to us by the one who has all authority. He commands us to go, so let us go confidently. Growing up, perhaps... When you were first learning how to drive, you were excited. You were now ready to let loose and to go anywhere you wanted to go. And and maybe your parents said, okay, now that you can drive, I want you to run some errands for me. So they give you their credit card, maybe some cash, and they maybe even give you their car if you haven't got a car yourself. And, And they say, hey, go to the grocery store, get me these lists of items. And when you went, you were confident in the mission that you were called to. Because you went in their authority, the surety of the money that they gave you, to complete the mission. And the same is true for us in the church. We go based on the authority of Christ, not our own authority, and we trust and rest in the surety that he has given us. His very presence, as we will see later in this text. So it's from that confidence in the person, in the work of our blessed Messiah, that we go. Next, the disciples are to make disciples. This is the next point that Jesus gives. One commentator says that disciples are those who hear, understand, and do the commands of God's Word. Now, when it comes to make disciples, there's a couple of different interpretive issues in this text. One interpretation is that disciples are made by means of being baptized and taught. Another interpretation suggests that first one is converted, and by that made a disciple, and then you take that disciple and you baptize him or her, and you teach him or her. I prefer the latter translation, and let me give to you one text to support this. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say, Now... When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, and then there's a parenthesis here, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples. So we see a pattern here that Jesus was making disciples, but it was his disciples who were baptizing them. So there's a distinction there. And so that's why we see the pattern is that first the message is proclaimed, the Holy Spirit changes that heart to believe and become a convert and thereby a disciple. And then the church is to take those disciples, baptize them, giving them the sacrament, and then teaching them, which we'll consider here moving forward. In Matthew's gospel, he shows how the people of Israel, God's own people, reject this Messiah that's sent to them in his authority. And... As a result of this rejection, the gospel then goes global. We see this with the Apostle Paul, the apostle to the Gentiles. And so I also want to draw your attention to another interpretive question in this text about what does the phrase all the nations mean? So we see in in this passage before us that there's a mention of all the nations. Some people understand that all the nations only refers to Gentiles. That they're the only ones in view. And in fact, the Greek word for nations does have a connotation for Gentiles. However, in this text, there's no reason to believe that Israel ought to be excluded. Uh, There's no contextual reason in what Jesus is saying here that it only should apply to the Gentiles. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles. And in fact, this harkens back to Genesis chapter 12, where we see... God promises to Abraham that in him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. So, in a very real sense, this is that being fulfilled. In the New Testament context, now the gospel message goes forward to all the nations because of the one who has authority over them and over the entire earth and universe. One thing else you want to note, though, however, is that even so... The Gospel, it goes to the Jews and the Gentiles. Israel was judged for the rejection of the Messiah. This is important to note, that there's consequences for rejecting this authoritative Savior. And we see that... In AD 70, when the temple is destroyed, the temple, you could say, of their idolatry, of trusting in their own ways, their own way to worship, and it's rendered desolate. And mind you, to this day, on the Temple Mount is an Islamic mosque. So the people of Israel have not been able to worship according to the Old Testament cultic system, which in fact is obsolete and fulfilled in Christ. And so there are dire consequences to rejecting this authoritative Savior. Well, these verses call to mind Psalm chapter 2, one that you may be familiar with. It's called a Messianic Psalm. And listen to what God tells Jesus. He says, Ask of me, and I will give the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. The whole world is subject to Jesus' authority, and now he commissions his disciples to make disciples of the whole world. Whole world. Well, this mission of making disciples is of utmost importance to what we do as the church. This is why preaching the gospel is so central to what we do and to our worship. And to the reformers, you can even see that in their placing the pulpit or the lectern at the center of the worship auditorium. And why is that? Because the word is central to what we do in the roman catholic worship the lectern was often to the side as the the altar was front and center but in the reformation the pulpit is now moved to the front and center because this message that the church bears is one of supreme importance because the gospel is at stake and we see also that the message of heralding the good news is the means by which the people of God are brought in to the fold. It's the means that God has ordained to save his people, to sanctify them, to grow them in grace. And that's how he chooses to save lost sinners. This is incredible. that The fact that God works through sinful people, he he ordains a sinful minister to preach and proclaim this message, and it's through that that he chooses to elect his people that he chooses to bring them in because they are his inheritance. Some of you may be familiar with J. Gressa Machen. We studied him a little bit in the Sunday evening study, The Spiritual Stimulus. And Machen was a Presbyterian minister in the 20th century. He was concerned about fidelity to God's word because in his denomination, there was an increasing liberalism to where the missionaries all of a sudden changed their message. Now the message became one of the social gospel. In other words, it became of welfare and humanism. And, well, let's do nice things for people. But they ceased to call people to repentance and faith in Christ. And so Machen acts and he forms his own mission board, but he doesn't want to do so. He wants to submit to the church. But the very message of the gospel was at stake. The great commission was at stake if nothing was to be done. And the message of the gospel that Jesus has given to his church would be lost. So may we have the same vigor, the same passion, and the same dedication to the message that Jesus has given to us. Well, after going and making disciples, Jesus commands those disciples to be baptized. Along with this command, he states that disciples are to be baptized into the name of, of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So we see this formula here, and this is even present in our church today, that we baptize in the name of the Trinity. Now, baptism in the name suggests that that person being baptized now belongs to someone, in this case, God. And baptism is a sign of entrance into the covenant community. We even see that is true today. The same is true today. Question 94 of our shorter catechism asks, what is baptism? And the answer, baptism is a sacrament wherein the washing with water in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, doth signify and seal our engrafting into Christ and partaking of the benefits of the covenant of grace and our engagement to be the Lord's. Isn't this a beautiful description of our baptism? That this is entrance into the very people of God, the the very community for which Christ gave his life. Well, the final command that Jesus gives to his disciples is to teach his disciples. So they must not only be baptized, but they must be instructed. They must be taught. But notice that he says, all that I have commanded you. So what this implies is, it's not our own ideas. It's not our own opinions. The church is not to proclaim what she believes is right, what she believes is true, what she thinks is necessary. No. She must proclaim what Christ has commanded. Christ rebuked the Pharisees for their disregard of this. He rebuked them for teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. This is a serious offense that we ought to be taken up with proclaiming the truth of the scriptures Not our own truth, not what we believe is right. We also see the importance of the Old Testament scriptures in our context today. Though what Jesus is referring to here is specifically what he himself taught his disciples. But I don't want that to be lost on us. On the road to Emmaus, Jesus tells the two that are walking with him about all of the scriptures. How Moses and the prophets... Pointed to him, how they were about him. And so we see that the Old Testament has relevance in our lives today. But what's interesting is that Jesus doesn't see a time when any of his teaching is done away with because it's to the end of the age. It's every single day. It's of importance to the end of the consummation of the kingdom of God. Now we know that an emphasis of Jesus' teaching, or excuse me, Jesus' ministry was his teaching. That was a very important part of why he came. And now he tells the disciples to take this teaching and to share it. To take this teaching and to pass it on to the nations. To teach them everything that he has commanded them and taught. And this same message is passed down through the age of the church and is before us today. And this is the message that he has blessed. But he also says teaching them to observe what I have commanded you. It's not enough just to, just to know things intellectually, to give intellectual assent to the message of the Scriptures, to know all the right answers, to, to know the Sunday school answers. No, we must obey. The Scriptures say to obey is better than sacrifice. So we're to be obedient to the Scriptures, not just to know them, but we're to follow the example of Christ in His obedience to the Father in submitting to them. Preaching is also A part of teaching. It's been said, I believe uh, Dr. Martin Lloyd Jones made this comment, but don't quote me on that, uh, that all preaching is teaching, but not all teaching is preaching. But we want to emphasize that preaching and proclaiming this message is also a part of Jesus' commands here. And a distinctive of Reformed worship is what we call the ordinary means of grace. Question 88 of our Shorter Catechism says, What are the outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption? The answer? The outward and ordinary means whereby Christ communicateth to us the benefits of redemption are His ordinances, especially His Word, sacraments, and prayer, all which are made effectual to the elect for salvation. But you may be thinking, okay, I know the story of Christ. I know what he did. And I know the, the, this mission that he's given to teach and for the church to preach. But, but how does the church receive those benefits from all that time ago? Those benefits from his death on the cross and his resurrection and his exaltation. How, how do I re- receive those benefits? The answer the ordinary means of grace. It's these simple elements that he has given to his church to receive The grace that he has given. And they're the means by which he not only converts sinners, but by how he grows sinners in godliness. So if you're wondering what's the key to spiritual growth, it's these right here. It's the teachings of Jesus. It's the prayers of the saints. It's the sacraments which are the gospel in action, enacted before our very eyes, that they're physical and tangible that we interact with. Calvin rightly notes that since this commission was given to the church, to his disciples, that no one can lawfully administer baptism or the Lord's Supper who is not lawfully ordained. Christ has given these ordinances to his church and to his under-shepherds whom he has particularly given his ministerial authority. Have you ever been a part of a relay race where you pass the baton to somebody else? Well, that's the picture of what Jesus is telling his church to do, to take this message and pass it on, to baptize, to teach disciples, to continue to do this until the end of the age as we will see. This is a picture of what we're to do as the church. But you may be wondering, okay, this was given to his church. Does that mean I just kind of sit by and yeah, just be content and you know let the officers of the church be involved with that? I would say no, not at all. The Great Commission applies to each one of us today as individuals. There's a sense in which we're all called to bear the gospel in no matter what sphere we find ourselves. And we're to do this in obedience to Jesus, to pass on what he has commanded, and to disciple others, to disciple one another in perhaps a small group setting or Sunday school, whatever that looks like. We're to be involved with this And additionally, we're to pray for the officers of the church. We ought to pray for our elders and our deacons, whom the Lord has given authority to shepherd us. We should submit to their teaching, to their shepherding, to their discipling. And all of us, actually, who are members of the church, take a vow to this end, which says, Do you submit yourselves to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? In submitting to our officers, we submit to Christ himself who has chosen them to be over us, to shepherd us, to guide us, and to lead us. Also, we are to pray for and support our missionaries, those that we support at this church. We have to pray for them as they bring this good news of the gospel, as they herald it to the nations, We can support them in a very real sense in prayer. And and the question is, do you believe in the efficacy of prayer? This is something that Christ ordains to grow his people in grace. So let us take ourselves up with prayer, with praying for the missionaries that we support. So far, we have considered Jesus' authority in declaring the church's mission and Jesus' commands regarding the church's mission. Let's move to our third point, Jesus' promise regarding the church's mission. In the second part of verse 20, we see that Jesus gives his disciples and his church a promise. Now, this is a promise to be with them himself. We know that the Holy Spirit is promised to be given to the church. He's sent by the Father and the Son, but now the Son of God Himself promises to be with them. He's not just going to tear them loose and say, have at it, good luck, and pat them on the back. No, He Himself will go with them and will be alongside of them with His authority in the work that He calls them to do. He's not just some distant dictator or commander that leaves them to their own devices to figure things out on their own and to struggle. No, He promises to be with them. This recalls What Matthew highlights at the beginning of his gospel, a word that we all know, Emmanuel, God with us. And this is a very real sense in which God is with us. In the second person of the Son of God, that he goes with his church and supports her on this mission. And this mission isn't short term. It's not small. It's not here today and gone tomorrow. He's not fickle like we as human beings can be. He is with us every day, even to the end of the age. But... This is a mission that doesn't just have the end in sight. He's with us every day. Every day that we are taken up with this mission. Every Sunday, Lord's Day by Lord's Day, He is present and He is with us. Well, Jesus promises to be with His bride on her mission. He won't let her go. He will not let her falter. But we may be tempted to look at the world around us. We may think, wow, will this mission be successful? We don't have to look far in our culture, in the world around us, to see the degradation of what has taken place. The senseless murder of unborn babies. The desecration of the Lord's Day. And the debauchery of sexual perversion and idolatry that is rank in our culture around us. And we can look at the news and we can look at social media and we can wonder, what hope is there? Will this message be successful when it doesn't seem that the the world around us is embracing the church and her Savior, let alone tolerating her? This message is becoming more and more opposed, even in our own culture. And so we can wonder, will this be successful? Well, think for a moment of history. Think for a moment about the advance of the gospel. How God works gradually over time. It starts in seed form with the nation of Israel, and it eventually comes to the Gentiles. It spread over time from a centralized locale in Asia, in Europe, and indeed, in our context, it spread to the whole world. Today, there are churches meeting across this globe in doing what we are doing now, who are worshiping the Triune God, who are proclaiming this message and this mission. That He has given it's easy to look through the scope of our limited experience and what's before us what we see on social media what we see on the news but we must come back to our sovereign Lord who gave his very life for his church he gave his life on the cross to die for his people and he will gather his elect from the four corners of the earth and his sheep will hear his voice. Today, while you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. He welcomes you to trust in him anew, to trust in him every day, even when you don't, even when you fail. He welcomes you to read his word, to trust in his authoritative promise that he's given to his church. Well, in our text, we have considered this great commission that he has given to his church. His mission is clear. Go, make disciples, baptize them, and teach them. This was God's mission all along, as we noted in Genesis 12, that he promises to make the nations blessed in Abraham. It's all the nations. This was his plan all along from the beginning. The gospel is not just for the Jews. It's not just one centralized locale or a political movement. It's for the world. It's for the universe. As we preach the gospel, as we're obedient to the Great Commission, he will gather his sheep. He will gather His sheep. And as the church, we preach the gospel. We baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Spirit. This is a Trinitarian mission and calling. The Father chose a people for His own possession. The Son gave Himself and purchased them. And the Spirit applies to them the redemption purchased by Christ. This commission is given to His church, and we are called to service in His church. Every single one of us. Are all of our giftings the same? No. But one cannot say to the other, we have no need of you. Paul tells us that very specifically. The whole body is needed because Christ has dispensed gifts to his body. He's given gifts to each one of you today. So serve in whatever gifting he's given you with passion and confidence because he has given that to you for the edification of his saints, for the proclamation of the gospel. In your own personal life, seek to share this good news of the gospel with those around you, at work, at school, your friends. And do so confidently. Invite them to church. Invite them to be a part of this covenant community of the people of God and this mission that he has called his church to do. Let us take up this mission, making disciples of all the nations which are Christ's inheritance in full confidence, knowing that Jesus himself promises to be with us to the end of the age. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God, we come before you in humility and and thankfulness of all that you have given us, the manifold blessings that we have seen on display even in our worship this morning. We're thankful for this mission that you have given your church and the role that each of us plays in this mission, the gifts that you have given us to use for your glory. Let us do so with confidence, trusting in, the authoritative Savior, because it is His reputation that is at stake if we are not successful and we know that His Word will not fail. Let us rejoice in You today, going and embracing the mission that Christ has given to His Bride, the Church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.